Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. How is it that you can have 12 sermons on Ten Commandments? <laughs> well, there's an introduction and uh, there's a conclusion. Tonight's the conclusion. And I thought we'd take a look at the New Testament Ten Commandments, or not Ten Commandments, but the New Testament kind of uh, view of the Ten Commandments. Um, why? We actually began this way. We began by asking, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? And the question I asked tonight is the flip side of that. Why do we observe them? Why do we keep them? We began with, why did God give them? And we asked the question tonight, why do we keep them? And I would suggest to you that, the, that they're really two sides of the same question. Um, <clears throat> a fellow by the name of Richard McAdams, uh, University of Chicago law professor, wrote a book about four or five years ago taking a look at secular law and why we obey the law. And he came up with about three or four basic reasons. He said, first of all, from an e e economist's perspective, there is the uh, view of deterrence. So what is deterrence? Legal sanctions, and if we break those legal sanctions, we are what? We are punished. So the idea that there is a deterrence there, and it, if we break the law, then we're going to be punished. So we don't, we don't break the law. We keep the law in fear of what? Punishment. So you might say that's the, the penal theory. He said sociologists will say it's for legitimacy. And that is that, and this is sort of goes back to a kind of contract view of society. That we have a contract in society and that we all together assume that there is an authority under which we live. And that authority has the right to give us laws and we obey the laws based on that, that legitimacy. And that makes sense. He then said that there's what is the coordination theory. His idea of the coordination theory is what I would call self-preservation. He uses an illustration of two people coming to stop signs, or maybe four people coming to four stop signs, you might say. We know that if they all arrive at the same place at the same time and they're four stop signs, who goes first? <laughs> We've got a problem, don't we? <laughs> because of what? Right of way right away. But you, you get his point. The idea there is that we are a coordinated society and we give and we take. We see that there are boundaries of other people's rights and we don't violate those. They don't violate ours. And it's really for safety. And that makes sense. And then finally, uh, he didn't really give this a category or a name, but it's what I would call public opinion. And that is uh, our values are influenced by public, public opinion. And public opinion does in fact shape the way we look at the world. And sometimes it even changes the way we look at the law. Look at how the laws have changed just in our lifetime. I was uh, born in 1950. I didn't plan to use this as an example, but it came to my mind just now. I was born in 1950 and I started school in Baltimore, Maryland. 
And what's significant about that? Uh, in 1956, the Supreme Court decided that separate but equal was not right. And they began to do what? Desegregate. To desegregate the schools. I was in the first class in America of unsegregated kids in Baltimore, Maryland. They started immediately after, uh, after that decision. And so we have laws that change, and not only do the laws change and we give deference to them because of their authority, it actually begins to shape the way we think. And we understand things a little bit differently. Well, what does the Bible say our motives might be for keeping the Ten Commandments? I've got a few listed here. Joshua 1, 7, don't depart to the right or to the left from what the Lord has given us so that you might what? Well, the word that I use is prosper. Um, actually, the scriptural text says that you may have success wherever you go. And that's a legitimate motive. Prosperity. And, and that's one of the reasons I said that this, is, this, is, this question is really the flip side of the beginning question that we had at the beginning of the series. Remember we said that God gives those for our own what? Benefit. Our own benefit, our own good, sure. Uh, Exodus 20. Uh, why does that sound familiar? <laughs> Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. In the, um, in the Ten Commandments, we are told to obey our father and mother. So that what? Your days might be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So there's the idea there of health, well-being. It's kind of an extension of prosperity, but it's a bit different. Deuteronomy 28, the fear of punishment. You remember Deuteronomy 27 and 28 is a recapitulation. It's not really a recapitulation of the law itself there. But after the law has been recapitulated earlier in Deuteronomy 5 and then expanded on a bit, uh, at the end, God has told Moses to tell people that when they go into the promised land, they're to stand before Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and to pronounce the what in front of Mount Gerizim? The blessings for keeping the law and what in front of Mount Ebal? The curses. And it's interesting. It begins with the curses. And... Uh, Curses are listed in chapter 27 and then in chapter 28. And here's another motive, fear of punishment. That's legitimate. You might say that's the penal theory. Deuteronomy 28, all these curses that have been listed in 27 and 28 will come upon you and overtake you if you disobey God's commands. Another which you might say is the legitimacy uh, thing that uh, McAdams was talking about is I would, I would call it loyalty. We all live under some authority to which we are loyal. We're loyal and we obey the laws of our government because the New Testament tells us to do so. But I would say it has more to do with loyalty, duty, honor, and respect for that authority. And I would say that we do that because God has given us those laws. We do it out of loyalty and accountability to Him. We know He is God. But it's not just that he gives a list of rules. I would say that it goes beyond that. We know that he's the authority, we know that he's God, but I would hope that we do it because we are loyal to him. And we feel accountable to him. 
And there's some that I think I could probably proof text and find some scripture passages to back these up, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, they're just common sense things. One would be integrity. Be true to whom? If, if the one that I said a moment ago is being loyal and accountable to the authority that is above us, the, the government, or and God, when I speak about integrity, it is being true and loyal to whom? To self. Integrity. We are one with what we believe and the way we behave. Uh, being true to ourself. To oneself, one ought to be true. Because if you're not true to yourself, you're not true to anyone else. This is, this is a matter of conscience. We, we, we know what is right. There's an inner ticking kind of moral barometer in us. The barometers tick. No, <laughs> you know what I mean. And we're true to that. Another would be one of the things that McAdams mentioned, and that would be social pressure. We do it for the common good. Um, but not just for the common good. When we break the law, we not only are punished, but we bring what upon ourselves and our family and our name. Shame. Shame. So there's this idea of public image that we project, those around us, and the response to social and peer pressure. And psychologically, for the sake of our self-image. It's good that we feel good about ourselves and that we know that we have been true to ourselves and to love. And then there's finally Immanuel Kant. And some of you studied some philosophy. You know what Kant said about the categorical what? Imperative. There is something, his was more in terms of even, he didn't really see God as personal God. He saw God as being an ultimate, if you will, force or ideal, sort of like Plato did. He was rather agnostic. But this is doing the right thing because why? It's the right thing. How do we know it's the right thing? We just know it's the right thing. And this isn't just conscience. This is that there is something out there, if you will, that's called truth, which a lot of folks don't believe there is anymore, which calls us to be obedient. And he described this in God terms, in supernatural terms. Uh, some would describe it in terms of natural law. We describe it, once again, in terms of God. That there is a categorical imperative, even though people will not attribute God for being, even though the people will not believe that God exists, we know, based on Scripture, Romans 1, for example, that we know what is right, not just because we have a conscience, and not just because there's natural law, but we know that things are right, are wrong because of God's categorical imperative. So, those are all fine and good. I think those are legitimate. But I'd ask this question, what is God's motive? Not just for giving the Ten Commandments, for our benefit, for our pleasure, for our good, for a well-ordered society, but what is God's motive for our keeping those commandments. Hmm. Exodus 20, once again, Ten Commandments. Verse 6, Deuteronomy 5, verse 10. Right in the middle of the second commandment, what's the second commandment? The first is, have no other gods before me. The second is what? Make no graven images, no idolatry. 
Right in the middle of the second commandment, he speaks of himself in this way. But showing chesed, showing loving kindness, showing mercy to thousands, to those who fill in the verb, to those who blank me and keep my commandments. Love. Wow. Embedded in the Ten Commandments is one of his divine motives for our keeping them. You see, he shows mercy. He shows love. That is the Old Testament expression of love. Hesed to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 11 in two places. Verse 1 and then it's spoken a bit differently in verse 22. You shall therefore blank the Lord your God. What is it? This isn't the Shema. But it says the same thing. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep His charge, His statutes. There's an equation there. To love God is to do what? Is to obey God. Deuteronomy 13. He's talking about there about not listening to false prophets. And he says this. You see, when false prophets come along, God, God doesn't cause them uh, to, to be and to have a false message, but he allows them. For what purpose? For the Lord is testing you to find out this. And then obviously when a false prophet prophesies, and we know that's a false prophet, do we obey them? No, we, did, we, we don't obey. And he says this, For the Lord is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God and fear him. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. And whenever it says fear, we've already seen that it means also to love him. And you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. I'd suggest to you tonight that, you know, this idea of love in the New Testament being a motive for our action is not new. It is embedded deeply in the Old Covenant. Jesus came to explain it to us. You see, in his farewell discourse, uh, beginning in uh, uh, John 13, 14 through 17, in his farewell discourse, Jesus clearly defines God's motive for obedience. So now we come over to the New Covenant. Uh, and I would talk about two things tonight. First of all, love's call to obedience. And that's the first passage. That's listed in your order of service tonight, which you don't have in front of you, okay? John 14, 15. And uh, I'm not going to have you stand for the reading of God's Word because it's pretty short. By the time you stand up, you'll be sitting down, okay? John 14, 15. If you love me, title of the sermon tonight, you will what? Keep my commandments. There it is. There it is. Now, this is right after he has um, talked about he's going away and they can't go where he's going, not yet, but later he, they will be able to go where he is. And then, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, also believe in me. And by, by the way, that's a command. He says, believe in God, believe in me. Imperative. Then he, um, he goes into this message about, of course, uh, the Father's house. And then he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he talks about believing that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And that if we believe him, we can do greater things than even he did. 
And then at the bottom of that paragraph is verse number 15. And many scholars, in fact, say it doesn't, begin, it doesn't belong so much at the bottom of that paragraph, but at the beginning of the next paragraph. And the next pericope, the next paragraph, introduces the idea of the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is a hinge verse. And the different scholars uh, say, depending on the uh, uh, families of texts that you look at, uh, that that verb may uh, not necessarily be an, a, 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 um, an indicative, it may not be an imperative, it might be a subjunctive. If you love me and keep my commandments, would be subjunctive, then I am going to do what? I am going to send the Holy Spirit. I think it is a hinge verse. I think it does have to do with coming the Holy Spirit. But I look at it as a kind of indicative imperative. Very simply, if you love me, that's subjunctive, then there is a command to do what? To keep my commandments. The idea is repeated later in the passage, in the passage about the Holy Spirit. In verse 21, you've got a parallel uh, expression of it. Look at it, verse number 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So you see, he flips it around. If you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 21 says, uh, if you keep my commandments, then you are the one who loves me. Verse 23 puts it a little differently. If you love me, you will keep my, not commandments, but my what? My word. My word, and most scholars will take that as all of his teachings. 1 John expresses it a couple of times. 1 John 2, 3. By this, we know that we have come to know Him. Know Him in an intimate way. The suggestion there is a loving kind of knowledge. By this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. And three chapters later, in chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God. We have an equation here. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. So numerous times... In the New Testament, we have this expression of God's motive for our keeping His commandments doesn't cause Him to love us, but it shows what? That we do love Him. There's that equation. So the love's call to obedience, John 14, 15. The word there is to keep my commandments. The word keep there means to have a watchful, caring attitude about. It's not only obedience. There is a kind of love for God's commandments that is involved. Uh, to take pains, not to lose sight of them. To be careful, and we have to be responsible and accountable not to let others violate them. To treasure them, to keep, to hold, to treasure, to hide. The, the, the same verb is used in 1 Peter 1. We preached on that about four or five months ago. Remember the inheritance that we have, which is kept where? In heaven. It's kept. The treasure of our inheritance is guarded. God takes pains to make sure it's not lost, that it's not violated. And it is the treasure that's kept. Okay. Is that me or is that the... Okay, I'll try to stay still. 
Um, there are other promises that are given for keeping His Word. In John 8, if we keep His Word, this shows that we are true disciples of His. In John 8, 31. Another expression of keeping His Word is our promise is that we will have eternal life later in John 8, 51. If you keep my word, if you keep my commandments, not only do you show that you love me, but you're my disciple indeed, and not only are you my disciple indeed, but I promise you that you will have eternal life. Conversely, in John 12, he says, If you do not keep my word, for whoever does not keep my word, whoever does not treasure my word, what will happen? He says that my very word will be that which judges them later. The word for commandment um, is used a couple of times in this passage. It follows. In verse number 21, it's repeated in the parallel passage that I mentioned a moment ago. And in verse number 23, we just saw that the word word there is used instead of commandment to suggest teaching. And then in the negative expression of that, those who do not keep my words is found in number 23. So you've got this idea of commandment, commandments, word, words. What's being said here? Most scholars will say he's saying you keep what? Everything that I've said. Now these disciples have been walking with him for three years. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. Is it 613 rules? No. But it's the whole, it, it, it's not the rabbinic code, but it is what the rabbi has taught and lived and exemplified. You've watched me behave like I do. It is a lifestyle thing. So what are these commandments that Jesus gave them? Well, we know explicitly some of them are listed. Uh, for example, the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes and says, what must I do to have eternal life. And Jesus says, you, he, doesn't, he doesn't tell him at first to go and sell all he has and give to the poor. What does he first say? You know the commandments. And then what does he do? And it depends on which version you look at. Matthew 19, Mark 9, Luke 18. They vary a little bit. But essentially, it's the second table of the law. Okay? Uh, the most comprehensive of those, I believe, is, is in Mark 9 covers all of them. Except instead, instead of saying don't covet, it says don't defraud. But he introduces this in Matthew 19, in the Matthew 19 passage, and he says this, if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. And at first that sounds like a legalistic thing. If you keep the commandments, then you will enter life. And then what does a young, rich young ruler say? Ah, I've kept these ever since I was a boy. And Jesus says, what? One thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, then come, follow me. And the man went away because he had great wealth. What was Jesus saying? It's not just a list of rules. He's talking about the second table of the law. That is, love your neighbor as yourself, basically. Was he saying you don't have to worry about loving God? No. That was just representative of what the... He, 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 was, he was reaching the rich young ruler where he was. And he knew that he did not care for his neighbor. What else does Jesus say about commandments? He expected us to keep all of the, all the commandments, didn't he? 
in the Sermon on the Mount, don't, don't you think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets? I've come to do what? To fulfill them. Which ones? All of them. Not one jot, not one tittle of the law will pass away until everything is fulfilled. And who fulfilled it? What's he talking about? He fulfilled it. He fulfilled it by accomplishing all of the prophets' prophecies about himself. He fulfilled it by obeying all of God's commands. You think he tithed? I believe he did. Did he offer sacrifice? I believe he did. We know he went to the temple several times. We don't have explicit examples of his doing so, but he was obedient. And he fulfilled it by explaining them more fully. In the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, and on six points, then he expands upon what the law really meant about murder, about adultery, about keeping one's vows, about divorce, about retribution, about how we relate to our friends and our neighbors. He expanded on it. So he explained those things fully. But those weren't the only times that he talked about specific imperatives. Um, in, the, in that same sermon, when he talks about uh, enemies and, and, and neighbors, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. Then he gives them an imperative. He says, I tell you to do what? Love your enemy and do what? Pray for those who persecute you. Wow. That, that's one of his commands. After John the Baptist was put in prison, it says that Jesus went around Galilee preaching. And what was his preaching? It began with an imperative. Remember what the imperative was? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And he preached the good news. When he calls his disciples after uh, who, gave, who, who gave the confession at Caesarea Philippi? Peter. And who also tried to bridle Jesus then when he said that he was going to go suffer? Peter. <laughs> Get thee behind me, Satan. In between those, though, he says what? If anyone will come after me, then he says what? Let that person deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That, that, that's a command. That's conditional if a person is going to. But if you are, then the command is to deny oneself. When he's talking about the end times coming, in the Luke passage about that, after his disciples ask him to explain what's going to happen in the future, and he, he talks about the end coming then, he gives them a very clear command. He says, stay alert at all times. Be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. That's a command. And of course, Matthew's gospel ends with a command. And the command is not go, is it? No. As you are going, what's the command? Make disciples of all nations of all peoples, of all people groups. Doing what? Teaching them to observe everything I've taught you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you see there were a number of other commands that he gave in addition to then keeping the first and the second table of the law and uh, he gives them a new commandment. Uh, the two great commandments to the scribe in the temple. There are a couple of different accounts of that. One, the scribe is somewhat friendly. In another account, he is an adversary. But he says what? 
What are the two great commands? He's asked for the scribe, and he answers in one account, and the other, he says, he, he, he uh, asks the scribe. And the two great commands are to love the Lord your God, and where does that come from? Deuteronomy, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. And the other from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Two great commands. And then he gives them another command, a new commandment, in John 13. What is that? love one another. And he doesn't say just one time. Later in this next chapter, in chapter 15 in verse number 12, and again in verse number 17, he repeats it. He repeats it twice. He says it at least three times. Love one another. Love each other as I've loved you. And you see, by this, others will know that you are my disciples. So you might say that Jesus reduces this down to three great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor, and love one another. And John echoes this in his epistles, four times. In the first epistle, he says three times in various ways that we are to love one another and to show that we love God by doing this. And in 2 John, he does it once. So God's love is a motive for obedience, clearly in the New Testament. This word love, I, let me ask you just a, a transparent question, okay? Do you love God? Now, we, we sometimes are like the little doggy in the back of the car, you know, with a bobblehead. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I love God. But let me confess to you, sometimes I feel deeply guilty because I do not love God the way I should. Um, the moment that I saw Beverly Frederick, I knew I loved her. What about you? <laughs> no, 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 what did you, Beverly's sitting in the back, yeah. No, I didn't know what that love meant. I didn't know that this is the person that I was going to spend the rest of my life with, but I, I knew there was something special, you know. Have I ever questioned that love? Yes. Has she ever questioned that love? Yes. Not whether or not she loves me or whether or not I love her, but what are the depths of that love and what does it involve? Those of you who are married, you know what I'm talking about. You grow in that love. It means something different after a year, after five years, after 10 years, after 20 years. Um, it's not just that emotional feeling that you had at the beginning. Same thing with parents and children. Same thing with siblings. It's not that romantic eros love, phileo love, it is a phileo love and a storge love. Yeah. A familial love. But, and sometimes our relationships and our families get strained. And sometimes we ask the question, do we really, really love? Do you love God? Well, I have to admit, I've never seen God. I didn't see him coming, walking up the stairs out of dorm F on, at Auburn University, and I saw him and instantly knew that I loved him like that, okay? I came to know who he was through his son, Jesus Christ, when I was six years old. I'd never seen him, but my mother and my dad and my pastor and my teachers told me about him, and I came to learn about him, and I came to begin to love him. But let me tell you, there are times when I don't question my love, but I question whether I love him like I should. 
I'm being transparent with you. And that bothers me. But dealing with this passage, I think I've come up with at least my understanding of why that's so. Let me share it with you. Um, agape love. That's, that's the noun. Agapao, the verb. Agape love is not like we know. And it, and it, it does involve some bit of, of, I think, romantic love, Song of Solomon, okay? But it's not the same thing, and we know this. And, and we analyze this very precisely and linguistically using the Greek language, and we think we have it all figured out, and I don't. But what I do know about agape love from the Scripture is that it is not that kind of romantic thing where we have seen God and we fall in love with God by seeing Him in that same way. No, it's an intelligent comprehension that is a purposeful devotion. Think about that. It involves an intelligent comprehension and it leads forth to a purposeful devotion. You see, it may involve some emotion at some point, but it doesn't begin primarily with an emotional feeling. Oh, I, I know when we, when we come to realize that Jesus died for us, there probably was a point in your life where you were overwhelmed and overcome by that and you even wept. Am I right? Have you ever wept about that? If, if you have not wept over the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you personally and for me personally, then we have not thought about it seriously. We have not taken it seriously. There is emotion involved. But agape love is not just an emotional feeling. That, that's phileo. That's eros. That's storge love. It, those involve more emotion. It, the emotion's involved in it, but it doesn't begin emotionally. No, agape love we know is what? It is a selfless love that loves simply because it loves. Without thought of what? Reciprocation. God loves us because why? He loves us because why? He loves us. Without need for reciprocation. We do not reciprocate God's love. Does God still love us? Yes. The lostest person on this, is that a word? The lostest person on this globe that has no thought about God and spits, if he does or she does, spits in the face of God and reviles his name and rebukes him, does God love that person? Absolutely. It's a sacrificial love that gives all in devotion to the beloved. Wow. Agape love here, when Jesus says it, it's a continuous love. What he's saying there is if you keep on loving me, not just if you love me, not if you just love me at one time, but if you keep on loving me, then that love will keep on guarding you. And that love will then motivate you to keep my commandments. See, the problem is that we, we, we think of love differently. I, I know we know what agape love is, but when we think about loving God, sometimes we don't think about it the right way. We think about the human-generated impulse and the human-generated action, and agape love is not human-generated. We, we think of it as sentimental emotion, a soulful feeling. We begin with a soulful feeling and we then give mental assent to it. I knew when I saw Beverly, I had this feeling. That there were stirrings in my heart. Okay? And then finally my brain figured out what it was. You see, it goes from the heart to the brain. And eventually the, the, the mental part of us, the spirit part of us then catches up 
with that emotion. Human love is a desire that seeks reciprocation, quid pro quo. I mean, it's just the way it is. It is inherently selfish. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. <laughs> I love you, and I want you to do what? To love me. And, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's not so... It's not selfish in a bad way. It, it's simply the way we're wired. Here it is. Human love is freely generated and it's a voluntary desire. We believe this. Love cannot be demanded and love cannot be commanded. So I didn't say to Beverly, you will love me and therefore we will get married. I could not demand it. She had to give it what? Voluntarily. And that's appropriate. So human love, this, this combination of phileo, storge, and, and eros is all human generated. It's a sentimental. It eventually brings the mind over to it. It desires to be reciprocated and it's freely generated. Agape love is quite different. It originates where? With whom? With God and not with us. God chooses to share it with us. He, he deems us worthy of sharing His love with us. Wow! The God of all creation who loves us with a, an unsurpassed love. Do we love God because... Does, does God love us because we love Him? No. First John 4. You know what First John 4 says? We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. You see, it's generated from God. It begins, actually, with a spiritual appropriation, not so much emotional. It begins with God letting us know that He loves us, and it enters our mind and our spirit, and we grasp it and we understand it first before we feel it, I think. Now, maybe with you, both, both things happen at the same time. But it's primarily a spiritual appropriation rather than so much an emotional outreach. It is, when we respond to it, we acknowledge that God, in fact, desires, and listen to this, God commands us to love Him. But wait a minute, that's not love. Who are you to command me to love you? You see, that's not the way human love works. Human love is voluntarily, freely given. You can't. And yet, Deuteronomy 6 says... To Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Wow. You see, agape love demands and commands our love. Why? Uh, here's the catch. It's not because he's selfish. It's not because it must be reciprocated. Why did he give the commandments? Why did he give the commandments? For our own good. Why does He command us to love Him? For our own good. He knows that that is best for us. Wow. Deuteronomy 5, uh, 6, 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am suggesting to you, no, it says what? I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. Now he's talking about the commandments, okay, yeah, that have been given, that uh, he is uh, going to reiterate in Deuteronomy. But he's also talking about his love. 
You see, God expects us to love Him because He has told us to love Him because He knows what's best. And He expects a volitional response. He expects our purposeful devotion, a conscious act of the will. And then what happens is we come to know Him. We, we come to be overwhelmed by the fact that He gave His only begotten Son, that His only begotten Son died for us and shed His blood for us. And we weep about that. There is an emotional connection that comes out of that. Don't deny, we cannot deny that. But it begins, you see, with our surrender, which is a volitional act of the will which He commands. And the more we come to know Him, the more we come to walk with Him as our Creator, as our Sustainer, as our Savior, and we learn all that He sacrifices for us, then we fall in love with Him in a human way. Does that make sense? You see, then we see agape calling forth storge and phileo and eros, and emotionally then there's the connection. You see, loving God is a growing process. Agapao, to love. We, we start, you know, when we think about loving God, if we, if we try to do it in a human way, and, and we usually do this, and we fail. If we try to love God, phileo love, we fail. You see, because phileo love, human love is inadequate, human love is insufficient. Remember Peter's response to Jesus. I think this is kind of insightful here. And I know what's, you know, and I, I know what's going on here. Uh, they're by the lake, and Jesus then is restoring Peter after he has denied the Lord three times, and, and Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And you know what's happening there. <laughs> he says, Peter, do you agapao me? Do you love me with the love of God? And you know what Peter says. Sure, Lord, you know I love you. I phileo you. He says, feed my sheep. And then, so you see what Peter's doing? Peter is trying to express his love in human terms, and Jesus knows that that's not really where Peter needs to be. That's where he is. But he's asking him, do you love me with the Father's love? Do you love me with the God love? Do you love me with the love that I love you? And Jesus knows that he doesn't quite yet. Hmm. He asked him a second time, do you agapao me? And, and then Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo, I love you. And then he says, what, tend my lambs. And then finally Jesus says, okay, all right, okay. Peter, do you phileo me? <laughs> do you at least love me in a human way? And then Peter says, yeah, I phileo you. Let me tell you, I think by the time Peter preaches at Pentecost, he's got it. I believe he, he does. But do you see what Peter's trying to do? He's trying to express his love for God in phileo, human terms, and that's insufficient. You see, human love cannot begin to grasp the agape love of God. It requires this. For us to love God like He wants us to love Him, it requires His divine assistance. He gives us His agape love, and He assists us in growing into that. He meets us where we are. He meets us in our inadequacy. And then He nurtures us as we walk with Him and we grow in our capacity to understand what agape love is. You see, it begins this way. It begins with trust. And that's why when you look at this passage, before Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, what has He already said? 
He's already given them four injunctions to do what? Believe in me. You see, agape love begins first with trusting. You believe in God, believe also in me, he says in this, in this uh, chapter. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father? In verse number 11, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Verse number 12, he who believes in me will do even greater things. And that four times he has in, enjoined them to believe in him. And then, based on that, he says, now if you love me, keep my commandments. It begins with trust. And it results in obedience. If then you do love me, you have trusted me, then you do what? Obey me. The hymn, trust, and what? Obey. Love and obedience are inseparable. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Love and obedience are inseparable. You see, love without obedience is dishonesty. Plug in instead of love, honor, respect with your mate or friend, if you love, honor, respect a mate or a friend, then you will what? Obey, you will continue to honor them and respect them and be faithful to them. Love without obedience, without respect, without honor is dishonest. What about obedience without love? Obedience without love is simply servile kind of drudging servitude. It's legalism. See, love and obedience go together, and that's what is being said here. So why, why should I feel guilty for not loving God as I should? I ask you that transparent question. Do you love God the way you should? Well, this is what I've come to conclude, for whatever it's worth. I think that when I'm not loving God the way I should, it's because I'm trying to love Him with phileo love, by my standards of phileo love instead of agape love. Does that make sense? The other thing is, nobody has ever loved God like God loves them. We will never love God as much as He loves us. We always fall short, and we need to recognize that. We always stumble, we always fall. There's some disobedience that's involved. And when our faith falters, what typically happens is we go back to trying to measure our love for God by phileo standards instead of agape standards. And when we disobey God, flip it around. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we don't keep all of his commandments the way we should. We don't obey all the time like we should. And when we then are disobedient, what happens is sin convicts us that we, in fact, are not loving the Lord the way we should. Instead of we're loving the world more than we're loving him. And none of us is perfect. So I'm not trying to salve my conscience by this rational argument. But I think that pretty much every Christian does not love God to the fullest measure. Because guess what? We're all sinners. But thanks be to God, He knows this and He understands it. And He continues to love us and He continues to walk with us and He, he, he continues to transform that phileo love that we have into a genuine agape love so that we understand more fully. You know, in marriage... In marriage, uh, you make vows to do what? To honor and to obey. Is that based on a sentiment? No, you, you met each other and you had an emotional sentiment. Okay, 
When you stood at the altar and you made those vows, it wasn't just emotion. What did you do? You made a purposeful, devotional commitment of duty and honor. And, and, and as you grow in that marriage, as you grow in that relationship, you continue to honor each other based on that commitment that you made. Freely expressed, but it's more than just an emotional feeling. It's more than just phileo, an obligation that calls forth accountability. Now here's the problem. You see, the more we rely on feelings to fulfill that commitment, the more off the mark we are. When you're married 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you still honor and respect your mate. Why? Yeah, you have feelings. You still have the phileo love, the eros love. But you have grown in devotion and accountability to the vows one has made. And when you get angry, and when you get upset, if you measure your love and your marriage or friendship with a person by phileo love, you're going to be disappointed. Why? Because it ultimately fails. You see, if you measure it only by phileo love, which demands reciprocation all the time, and which is basically selfish, then when you become angry and upset with your partner, with your mate, or with a friend, Phileo love says that you have a right then to be angry and to be disobedient and to be unfaithful. Quid pro quo. Does that make sense? Agape love says, no, you don't. When people say, I'm angry with God for whatever reason, and they feel justified in not being obedient, or they feel justified in being unfaithful, I can almost assure you they are measuring their love for God not by agape standards, but by phileo standards. And then we have the Holy Spirit that comes in, and he talks about that here in verses 16 through 24. The Holy Spirit then, he gives as our helper. He assures us of his presence, that we are his, and that we're his children. And then in the same passage, because we have the Holy Spirit, we are assured the Holy Spirit helps us to obey Him and to keep His commandments. Let me close with this. The second part, and this is a, a lot, lot briefer, that is in John 15, 10 through 14. You see, before we come to that passage in chapter 14, He says this in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He repeats that parallel passage. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. This isn't saying that he loves us because we love him. No, no, we love him because he loves us. What it does say is, if we love him and we show that we do love him, he demonstrates his love to us. He demonstrates his love to those that truly love him. Now, he loves everyone. He loves the lostest sinner that has never recognized him. But to those who then believe and those who keep his commandments, he fully discloses himself to them. He discloses the full mystery of Christ. The mystery that has been hidden for all the ages. His hidden messiahship that he had kept secret 
for three years, he begins to reveal to his disciples. And he fully discloses that love to those that then demonstrate their love by obedience. And then in John 15, it says this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that you may have, that you may have my joy and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. Here he says it again. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. In this we have the full disclosure of God's love to those that are obedient. What's fully disclosed? His abiding presence. You see, to those that will obey him, he says, I will abide with you. And I prove it this way. You see, I have abided in the Father, and the Father continues to abide in me, and I have kept His commandments. And you can trust that if I have done that with Him, I will do it with you. We have the full disclosure of His joy in verse number 11. You see, if we believe in Him, we trust in Him, and we keep His commandments as evidence that we love Him, then the fullness of Jesus Christ will be ours, not just His joy. Ephesians 3. To know the love of Christ which passes, surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God through Him. So He fully discloses Himself in this way. We will have His joy, which was set before Him that He then endured the cross and then sat down at the right hand of God, and we will have the fullness of Christ. And then finally, in verses 13 through 15, we have the full disclosure of God's great love. What is God's great love? Greater love has no man than this, then he will do what? Lay down his life for his friends. Jesus has already said this. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. Greater love has no person than this, that he lay down his life for his When's he saying this? The night before what? He is going to go to the cross. And then he lays down the condition in verse number 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what? If you obey me. This sounds remarkably like what happened to Abraham. You see? You are my friends if you obey me. And James were reminded that before the coming of the law, before the legal requirement of following the Ten Commandments, Abraham believed and he obeyed God. And James says this. You see that faith was working through his works. And as a result of his works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And we know that sounds very Pauline. And it is Pauline, even though it's James speaking. But then James goes on to say this. Not only was it reckoned to him as righteousness, but then Abraham was called what? the friend of God. You put this together and Jesus is saying, I think this, he's saying, you are my friends if you're like Abraham. If you have the faith of, faith of Abraham and if you have trusted in me to the point that you obey. And then he says this to them in verse 15. You are my friends. You're no longer slaves. Why? Because in verse number 10, if you're keeping my commandments, I'm abiding with you. In verse 12, if you are loving one another as I have loved you, you are my friends. 
And on the eve of his crucifixion, as he is, he is basically predicting his death, he's basically saying, I am about to lay down my life for you. You are my friends. And Jesus did that. And if you love the Lord and you obey his commandments, by definition, according to James and according to Paul and according to Jesus, you're his friend. We're his friends if we do what? If we trust and obey. Our love doesn't cause God to love us. Our love of him doesn't cause him to love us. But our love proves that we're God's friends. And we prove this by the motive of love and the motive of keeping the commandments is to show that we love him. So when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, what's he saying? To love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, to keep the first table of the law, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to keep the second table of the law, and to love one another as he loved us. That's the sum of it all. Why do we keep the commandments? But because we're God's friends. And we show him that we love him. First John puts it this way. This is his commandment. That if we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ. And love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. And he and them. We know by this that he abides in us. By the spirit whom he has given us. God calls us to obedience. Because he wants us to be his friends. And to show our friendship. And our love for him. By our obedience. Jesus then has explained. I think what was already embedded in the old covenant. By making it full and explaining it more fully. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals, reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.